The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's from the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Good, Father. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Father, I thought we could start tonight with a very interesting article that was posted on LifeSite News by one Peter Kwasniewski. We have uh, referenced a lot of his work on this program, Father. He seems to uh, post a lot of good material, but I thought this particular article posted in the blog section of LifeSite News was, was rather interesting. It's titled, Why the Troubles of this Pontificate Do Not Point to Sedevacantism. And uh, in this opinion piece, Father, he, um, he, he says that the position of Sedevacantism is untenable, he says it's merely a tidy explanation for the uh, current problems that the church is faced with. He says it has its roots in ultramontanism. And he concludes by saying that, yes, Francis is indeed the Pope. He just happens to be a very bad one. So what, what is your take on this article, Father? Well, actually, I saw the article, Tom. I, it, was, it was brought to my attention, in fact, by a, a mother um, of uh, 11 children who uh, also, you know, looks at, well, LifeSite News. We've often, often spoken of LifeSite News and, and uh, given a lot of credit uh, here. And I have also quoted Dr. Gwazniewski a number of times, favorably. And uh, I must say that I found this article troubling, as I found the poor dear lady, uh, lady's experience also rather troubling, because she tried to comment on this article and was subsequently banned for life <laughs> from commenting. Wow. And I thought, well, that's peculiar. Um, she sent me uh, the information of what she, what she had commented, and I thought, well, you know, I didn't see anything wrong with this. It's, it, uh, it's all a very important matter for discussion. And the, the sites, or, or the, I, I don't know what you'd call them, I guess, the, the uh, organizations that shut down all such discussion are Facebook and Twitter, and those outfits ban people for life for mentioning anything that is not politically correct. And I, I didn't think that was quite, I didn't expect that, let's say, from LifeSite News, that she would just uh, be summarily banned because she uh, expressed uh, different thoughts on the subject, thoughts which I thought were very important, uh, worthy of discussion, <clears throat> you know. But this is part of the problem between the uh, so-called Sedevacantus and the, 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 the anti-Sedevacantus. Uh, they really have a hard time discussing, except among themselves. <clears throat> um, but to have a discussion without uh, bitterness or vitriol or or um, name-calling, or um, kind of yeah, sort of a condescending attitude toward each other. It's, not only is it very rare, but um, it is the only way that they're going to actually get anywhere. 
So, uh, you know, again, all the more reason why I, I would have thought. Now, now, LifeSite News itself or Dr. Kosnitsky might have said, well, this is not the place to debate this issue on LifeSite News. And I understand that because the uh, the site is dedicated to pro-life pro -life effort and pro-life information. And for that, it is invaluable. But it was actually, actually Dr. Kwasniewski who brought this up in the first place. So he couldn't exactly say, well, we're not going to talk about this here. Um, so if one is going to have a blog, and I guess this was on the blog section, uh, and write such an article, one really should be intellectually, honestly expecting to have some sort of response. Of course. Right? And not just ban people who say, no, I don't agree <laughs> with you. Uh, it would have been much better for him to have actually thoughtfully responded to the points that she was making. Mm -hmm. This looks very bad, as though he had no response. <clears throat> so the best thing to do was to make her disappear. But in any case, I, wanna, I don't want to focus on that. It, it's just that there was troubling to me to, that that would be the reaction of, of her, what I thought was a thoughtful response to this. Um, so I, I would have to say disappointing. You know, my reaction to the article itself and the reaction to those who disagreed was very disappointing. I thought it was unworthy of Dr. Kwasniewski, as far as of what I've seen of him before. Uh, he started out by saying, as, since Vatican II, a small number of Catholics have uh, looked at the development since Vatican II, the heresy, the apostasy, and, and all the rest, and decided that we've had no popes since Pius XII, is what he says. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, it is a small number relative to, to the uh, total number of you know, those who are following the new, the new order of Vatican II, but it is a growing number. And I think you'd have to acknowledge that that small number has been growing, especially under Francis, right? Right. But um, he, he simply points out that their position is... Uh, is unfortunate and uh, it is understandable. He even says we can sympathize with the dismay of Catholics since Vatican II, but nonetheless, those who advocate this position of what he calls sedificantism is untenable. I think it's a mistake, though, for him to say that uh, all so called sedificantists uh, just actually dismiss all all valid popes uh, going back to Pope Pius XII. There's a, a huge range among the state of Accountants, as far as I can see, um, with regard to John XXIII, with regard to even to Paul VI. And at one point, um, they, they would start questioning who was a valid pope and who not. You know, it, it isn't uh, by all means universally true. He says, Generally, they hold there has been no valid pope since the death of Pius XII. Well, that's, uh, it, well, perhaps generally could be said. But here's the point that he makes here. The, the explanation he gives is this. The real root of Sedevicantism is ultramontanism. And this completely lost me. Because I, I have no idea where he is making this connection at all. It, this makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. Uh, he he uh, ties the state of a contest, uh, root, as he says, <clears throat> to ultramontanism, ultramontanism, 
And he says that the, the root of Sedevacantism is a belief that popes must be doctrinally sound and pure and uh, quasi-perfect in their, in their belief, in their profession of belief, and um, that they must really exhibit a, uh, a, a, a purity of faith, a purity of morals. And uh, this, he says, this idea of the Sedevacantus means that any pope who falls short of that ideal must not be a pope. That's how he, he sees it. And all I can say is he probably hasn't talked to many Sedevacantus or paid much attention to what they're actually saying um, because they're not saying that. I mean, he, he's almost <laughs> setting up a straw man and knocking it down. I don't know a single Sedevacantus who says we expect popes to be impeccable, that we expect uh, you know anyone who's a valid pope to be absolutely sound in every aspect of doctrine at all times and never waver in any way. I mean, Sedevacantus believed that John the Twenty-Second was a pope, and Honorius the First was a pope uh, before him, and uh, they know that they were not doctrinally sound. So, uh, but the idea of connecting that with uh, ultramontanism really makes no sense because ultramontanism was, as a historical movement, you might say, it's tied to political power. Uh, the expression ultramontane means beyond the mountains, and it refers to the Alps, right? And on one side of the Alps, on the southern side of the Alps, you have Italy, and therefore Rome, and therefore the Pope. And on the northern side of the Alps, you have Germany and well, the, the Rhineland countries, and you have France and so on. Um, and so it was a matter of political power and the idea of whether you're from our side of the mountain or from their side of the mountain, right? Uh, initially, the term ultramontane was used actually on the southern side in, in Italy to describe those who had come from northern Europe and might not be studying in Rome or whatever. And uh, it was simply used to point out that they came where they came from, you know, like the other side of the tracks. But as time went on, it became uh, a pejorative term to describe almost like political parties, the party supporting the power of the popes, the, the temporal power, that is the civil power of the popes, <clears throat> as opposed to the uh, civil power of the kings of, uh, of Europe. And there was a tug of war, as it were, going on for the, uh, for the exertion of this civil power, the temporal power. Um, so that ultimately the, the term ultramontane came to be used north of the Alps as a derogatory statement about those who were almost disloyal to their countries, to their kingdoms, to their kings, because there were those in the church who actually uh, favored the the people uh, people authority, right? Um, how that this, you know, it goes back to the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. It goes back even to uh, Pope uh, Gregory the Seventh in his lay investiture of struggle against the the emperor at the time. Uh, the, this, uh, the struggle of the church, on the one hand, to assert the Pope's uh, powers, including the temporal power, 
On the other hand, uh, to to uh, defend it against the aggressive uh, attempts to encroach upon it by the kings of, of Europe, the European European countries, European kingdoms. So um, this this really, I've never seen ultramontanism referred to in, in the in the sense that he's using it here as though it involves a, an exalted view of the popes, an idealistic view of the popes as being perfect in, in every way. It doesn't make any sense to me at, at all. And I would actually challenge Dr. Kwasniewski to find any source, any reputable source, any historian who would, who would interpret ultramontism as he does in saying that the real root of sedivic Comtism is in Ultramontism, um, ultramontanism, excuse me. But also, um, he goes on to say that the basic problem was, that now he goes on to say this, the basic problem with Sadievicontism is that it is a tidy explanation. Tidy is not bad. <laughs> Just because a solution is tidy doesn't make it bad, right? So just to dismiss it on the basis of what he calls a tidy explanation doesn't make sense. I don't even agree that it's a tidy explanation. I think it is It is problematic. Very. I think it is a problematic explanation. But for him to just count it out, as though it, it just dismiss it because he says, well, it's just too tidy, so let's not even give it any you know, credence at all, that is not the work of a scholar, as far as I can see. Especially in light of what he just says here before. Listen to what he says in the paragraph before that. He says, needless to say, Pope Francis is now pushing the bounds of papal deviancy far beyond anything we have ever seen before. Well, there you are. I, say, I agree. But does he not see that his own <clears throat> statement means that we have something new going on here? That we have a situation here that is unprecedented. As he says, as he agrees. I mean, he's mentioned Honorius, right? He's mentioned other problems with popes being uh, less than orthodox in their beliefs. He mentions that they never tried to uh, impose them ex cathedra. But still, here they are, let's say, denying the ordinary magisterium of the church, which is, which is infallible in its authority, right? But he says Francis is something different, though. Francis has gone beyond now this. So the very fact that as he's, he's agreeing with this, that Francis is pushing the bounds of papal deviancy far beyond anything we've ever seen, should make him pause and think, well, you know, maybe we need to rethink this because maybe there are different principles. Actually, he contradicts himself in here. He says, look, these Catholics, these ultramontanist Catholics who thinks the Pope has to be so doctrinally orthodox all the time. <clears throat> he says, have a look at history. Look, back in the time of the 600s with Honorius, well, there were probably Catholics back then who said that popes can't be heretics. It's impossible. Then Honorius comes along and proves that popes can be heretics because Honorius was condemned two generations later by the church and excommunicated from the church for his favoring of the monothelite heresy, in fact. 
So here, Dr. Kwasniewski is saying, well, there was a point for the first, let's say, 600 years where Catholics would say that a pope cannot be a heretic, and then comes along a pope, Honorius I, and he is a heretic, or condemned as one, listed as a heretic. So you see, we've, we've learned something new. Why can't Dr. Kwasniewski, who says, now look, we have an unprecedented situation going on, why can't he say, well, this might be another one of those times, and maybe I have to think, Dr. Kwasniewski, myself, and think maybe we have to realize that, yes, maybe this can be true. Maybe it is, it is possible that a pope can push the limits to the point where, in fact, he can't be the pope, right? Why does he not apply that same standard to himself and uh, refer to the specious ultramontanist narratives, right? Um, Yes, there were times before when Catholics encountered situations that they might have thought could not be. And maybe Dr. Kwasniewski himself has to realize that might apply to him too. Mm -hmm. Because he seems to be indicating that he recognizes this is a time like that, right? But you see, Tom, the problem, the whole problem is that he's reasoning backwards. You see, he gets to the point, and that is, Francis has to be a pope, because... If he's not the Pope, and, the, and the, the, since Vatican II, the, the Vatican II pontiffs have not been real popes, then they're cardinals and no cardinals. If there are no cardinals, you can't elect another pope. So he says, there can be no more popes. Well, this is an idea that has been brought up. I myself have brought that up several times here on the program, saying that this represents a problem. Not perhaps an insurmountable problem, but a problem that needs to be addressed. But he addresses it as an insurmountable problem, a fait, almost a fait accompli that if, if you know, if, if what they say is true, this must be the case and there's no alternative. Okay. And he says, therefore, the church is finished because the promise of Christ has failed. He's drawing all of these conclusions that are unwarranted, not really proving any of them, right? Just saying, this is what I think. But uh, this is not good scholarship. To start with a conclusion that say, this is my view of these things, and I'm going to start reasoning backwards to say what can and cannot be, and who must be wrong and who must be right, but especially what must be wrong, because if the the implications of what they're saying would contradict me, they must be wrong. Um, so I, I guess basically uh, my point here would be, look, I mean, you know, we, we've seen that um, there are those who really are trying to find their way through this this nightmare of, uh, I'd say, the uh, Bergolian captivity of the church. Okay, they're trying to find their way through this 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 tremendous nightmare of, of, of Bergoglio. But it doesn't help to just latch on to conclusions of their own and then anathematize anybody who says anything they think might imply something down the road that would contradict them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, what I really want to do is I want to get people sitting around the table and having a rational discussion about these things. Precisely because this is an unprecedented situation. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pius Tenth, in his first encyclical, indicated that he was terrified to become the Pope. And when he was elected in 1903, his first encyclical was written actually in 19, uh, in uh, 1904, I should say. October, October 4th of 1903. October 4th, 1903, he wrote the encyclical A Supremi. 
And that's when he said that he was terrified of being the Pope because he feared that the prophecy of St. Paul and 2 Thessalonians about the coming of the Antichrist might be happening then. <clears throat> and he indicated that, therefore, we are entering into unprecedented times and a real apostasy. So um, I think we need to stop uh, just throwing <coughs> stones here and uh, actually have some serious discussions about this. Um, and and stop pulling uh, tactics and antics like uh, such as Facebook and Twitter, banning people, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because they make a point that we don't like. Um, so in any case, uh, that's an appeal for that. By the way, just to put the cap on this, okay, something that was mentioned earlier. He says, okay, we've had, you cannot have a pope. He says, um, the truth is we have had, we, that we have a pope and we'll always have a pope. Then he says, well, not always, because <laughs> popes die and we have to elect another one. So, there, yeah, there are times when there is no pope. But still, those periods, he says, a popeless period must be limited, temporary, and easily brought to an end. Now, where is he getting that? Himself. He's just saying, this is how I think it should be, right? Um, so the idea of not having a pope going back as far as Popeye, the death of Pope Pius XII for the last 60 years is absolutely forbidden because Dr. Kwasniewski will not allow it. Mm -hmm. That is, his ecclesiology will not allow it. And he's, that's where he draws the conclusion that if this were true, Christ's promise would fail, the Catholic Church would have come to an end, and so on. His conclusions are not warranted, though. Father, I think there's another uh, contradiction in, in the paper as well. When he when he um, he says that the basic problem with state of vicantism is that it is a tidy explanation, but then he goes on in the same paragraph to kind of sneeringly dismiss the position and says, uh, you know, how, how are we going to get a new pope? How are we ever supposed to get a new pope? Will he drop from the sky? Almost like he, he doesn't even uh, he won't even consider it. He doesn't even want to consider it. Like you said, he starts with this premise that we must have a pope. We'll always have a pope doesn't even consider anything else. But it seems to me, like you said, the position of state of vacantism seems to be much more problematic than, uh, than his position of just saying, well, we have a bad pope. That, that seems to be so much easier because that's a very easily rectified problem. If you have a bad pope, we wait, we elect a new pope, we get a good pope, and when we're good, everything's fine. If we have the state of vacantism problem, though, that's a much harder problem to solve. Well, Tom, I think that's a very good point you're making here. I think what, he, what he's responding to is dogmatic sedivacantus just dismissing the problem by saying, well, he's not a pope, so that's it. And I think he, he's right in one way, and that is many of this, the dogmatic sedivacantus do present it as a just a tidy that's true. Um, sort of deus ex machina mm -hmm. uh, uh, situation, as, as though you could have a puppet ex machina mm. excommunication. <laughs> well, yeah, that's not really going to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and, and make it very sim simplistic. So maybe he's reacting to that. But that's where I think the dogmatic state of Vicantis are very badly representing state of Vicantism uh, as an idea and as a real possibility because they're not really, um, I think, willing to face the problems and address them. Sure. Uh, but there are problems. Uh, and, you know, a state of Vicantis might say, well, look, you say, okay, you know, we come uh, to the end of the line of the popes. Well, maybe we come to the end of the world. Maybe Pope Pius X was right that this is the end of the world. And we're not going to have any more 
uh, time left in the world. Uh, the judgment is coming, the great apostasy, the Antichrist, and so on. And so maybe we don't need any more hopes. <laughs> maybe a, a Sadie Vicantis would say that to him. But that's not an answer. Just because the state of Vicantus might think, well, I think it's the end of the world, so we don't need any more popes. That's not an answer. But there are state of Vicantus who actually think like that. And I think Dr. Kwasniewski is perhaps reacting to their oversimplification of the problem. Sure. But it does nobody any service to oversimplify uh, either position. The problem with his position is that that is a much, much more um, difficult position to uphold. Because basically what, what he's essentially doing, as I understand it, is saying there are virtually no standards that a pope has to meet to be the pope. That a pope can say and do all these things. And yet, you cannot question whether he is the Pope, because, hey, Popes are bad, we know they're bad, and there's really no limit to how bad they can be. Um, I mean, could the Antichrist become the Pope? He might say, well, I don't know, you know. <laughs> he might say, well, you know, there's no real limit to how bad this can get. We're always finding out more and more every day with Francis how bad it can get, you know. We're learning all the time how bad sure. a Pope can be. And some of them might say, okay, well, I mean, uh, if, if, you know, it got to the point that one followed his premise, uh, premises to their logical conclusion, one might say that even the Antichrist could become the Pope then. And, um, and he, all he would say to the contrary, maybe, is, well, God would not allow that. Well, people would be saying, well, again, oh, gee, a hundred years ago, people would say God would never allow Francis Bergoglio to become a Pope. Mm -hmm. So, but he's saying that already in what he says. Yeah, there was time when Catholic thought, Catholics thought this was not possible, and they found out it was. Well, uh, you know, if you follow his, uh, his line of thinking to the end and say, well, the Antichrist could become the Pope, well, then I rest my case. We, we've got a very serious problem. <laughs> And we need to stop uh, sticking our tongues out at each other. And uh, we need to actually sit down like intelligent people who have a love for our Lord, a love for the church, and really <clears throat> talk this through. Because we are coming into uncharted territory, historically. Sure. As he himself acknowledges. So I just want everybody to, to, to try to you know, calm down. And, and uh, um, I, I admit the shriller voices on both sides need to be kind of left to you know, uh, can carry on their snowball fight with each other. And the, those, the more thoughtful ones, should really try to sit down and, and, and understand what's going on here and see exactly what does fall within the range, uh, the realm of Catholic thought on this, mm -hmm. and what must be excluded. Father, one, one final point on this. I thought it was, it was rather fascinating. In the uh, Liberalism is a Sin book, which we've, we've discussed on this program before, there's a striking quote in there where, where the author is talking about the, the liberal parties in Europe and, and America. And he says, uh, do they not regard as their sole and most potent enemy what they contemptuously term clericalism and ultramontanism? The two things that we hear today, clericalism from Francis. So, so is this what the liberals? He says, this is what the liberals say. This is, their, this is their most potent enemy. And he lists two things, clericalism and ultramontanism. Okay, and these are the very things being denounced by Fra Francis mm -hmm. and Peter Quest Gonsiewski. That's right. right. 
clericalism and ultramontanism. Okay, Interesting. Well, well, actually, as soon as I read this article about the, cleric the ultramontanism, I couldn't help but think immediately what Francis says about clericalism. Because Francis is, is saying, well, the root of, of uh, you know, a, a sexual abuse of minor in the clergy is clericalism. So uh, Dr. Kwasniewski, I think, is pulling the same sort of approach to sedevacantism. The root of sedevacantism is ultramontanism. Talk about simplicity, <coughs> you know. <laughs> um, but anyway, and, and recently, I think uh, Walter Matt, uh, Michael, Michael, Michael Matt, Matt yeah. Walter, God rest his soul, Michael Matt came out with something that was also rather, rather intriguing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of our viewers sent us a link to one of his, his videos, I believe it was published in September, where he had a, a line in there where he said that we're not dealing with modernists anymore, but in fact, what we're dealing with is apostates. He says these are men who have lost the faith, not modernists anymore, but they're apostates and have lost the faith. What do you make of that? We're not dealing with modernists anymore. I, I, well, what I make of it is that Michael Mad, for all the other things he does, and he does some very good things, I think, um, that he doesn't understand modernism. I mean, this, this is the whole point. The, the ultimate goal of modernism is apostasy. So now we can say we're not dealing with modernists anymore. Now we're dealing with apostates. And say, okay, um, well, this is a modernist apostasy. Mm -hmm. St. Pius X described modernism, as we've said in this program multiple times, as the synthesis of all heresies. Well, a heresy is a denial of a, of a doctrine of the faith that must be believed by an obligation of divine Catholic faith. It's, it's divinely revealed. Okay? And to deny all of the doctrines of the faith is by definition apostasy. This is what modernism leads to. St. Pius X says in Pescendi that it leads to the destruction of all faith, even the virtue of faith, and leads to the destruction of all religion. And uh, this is apostasy. So how Michael Matt can disassociate apostasy from modernism, as though they were actually two different things, um, it, it shows a lack of understanding of one or the other, or both. But St. Pius X made it very, very clear that modernism is actually the process of apostasy. It is... Let me let me explain it, explain it this way because it, it might be a little confusing to people. Modernism is not just a a state, a steady state, in which one uh, is a full blown modernism instantaneously. You don't go from being a Catholic to being a modernist instantaneously. You get there progressively through modernism. Modernism is a number of principles, and when you accept those principles, you begin. They, they begin to play themselves out in your mind and in your life. And as you go through more and more applying the principles of modernism in your life, it's like an acid rain that eats away all faith and eventually destroys it entirely. It dissolves it completely. So there are degrees of modernism. They're not degrees of modernism in terms of certain modernist principles are more or less right or more or less Catholic. But there is more or one is more or less modernist as he actually 
has is following through on the principles of modernism. <clears throat> that's important for us to understand something that's real. There have been some who were very much behind Vatican II and who got to the point as uh, Vatican II was applied that they became increasingly horrified by what they were seeing. In other words, they were facing the practical consequences of what in principle sounded good to them. In practice, it was very evil. They saw the evil results and they were horrified. Like a chemist in the lab might say, oh, this is a nice chemical, and that's a nice chemical, this chemical has a nice color, let's mix them, mix them together and see what happens. And they find that they produce a very, very, very uh, virulent poison. And they realize that these things should not mix, or you know, the result of this is very, very bad. There are parents who might go through life teaching their children certain principles and find out that the children have followed through on those principles and they wind up practically, you know, uh, absolutely ungovernable, you know. Um, so they have to go back and review their principles and find out there's something wrong with my way of thinking here. Where did I go wrong? Well, uh, th there are people who started with the modernism of Vatican II and very, uh, very, very readily drew back from them when they saw where they were leading. I think, uh, Mr. Cole, I think Dr. Coulson was one of them. We referred to him as the, the psychiatrist or the psychologist who, um, went out to California to put into practice the, the principles <clears throat> of renewal of Vatican II and saw how deadly they were and how destructive they were and they rejected them. Um, there are any number of others, too, in the same way. In fact, there are many traditional priests who went down the road of the new Mass and got a certain way. 63, 64, 65, 66, maybe even got all the way uh, into um, you know, the 70s and then left it because they saw the practical consequences. The point, the point being simply that um, there, there are those who are still... You might say, following, playing out the principles of modernism. And there are those who are full-fledged modernists, who've t brought them the modernist principles to their ultimate reality, into their ultimate conclusions. And the prime example in the world today is Francis Bergoglio, Jorge Bergoglio. He is an absolute modernist right down to his chromosomes, okay, right, right genetically. Uh, he is a modernist. And um, so, um, but, but what St. Pius X saw was, he saw the conclusion in the principles, which other people who are less wise and less holy than he did not see. St. Pius X actually could see everything that's happening today. Even when he prophesied that the modernists would return uh, 50 years later, well, that's John the 23rd, and lay waste the church, as he told one of the cardinals. He saw this because he understood these principles with the wisdom of a saint, also a very brilliant mind, very practical mind. Um, so um, when Walter, when, when Michael and Matt, I'm sorry, see, I come from a different era. I remember reading The Wanderer years ago. Um, 
when Michael met uh, now with the remnant, of course, when when Michael met uh, says that we're no longer dealing with modernists, we're dealing with apostates. I, I think it must be because he doesn't really see that uh, this is the the whole point of modernism, ultimately to mm-hmm. end in apostasy. Sure, this is the fruition, as it were, the evil fruit of modernism. Yep. What we're dealing with, actually is quite contrary to what he says. We are not only dealing with modernism, we are dealing with those who are completely formed, deformed modernists. We're dealing with the ultimate results of modernism. And that's what apostasy is. Sure. <coughs> Father, you, you mentioned uh, Pope St. Pius X. We had a, a question uh, that a viewer sent in concerning Pope Pius X and his reforms to the breviary via Divino Athlatu, and he says that this was a drastic change. The rearrangement of the Psalms were entirely different. All repetition was removed and 75 antiphons lost. He says it was also a violation of Pius V's decree and Cuad Vovis. And he says, isn't it hypocritical to label the Novus Ordo as a rupture in tradition and yet utilize the Pius X arrangement? Also, he says, didn't Pius X's radical changes pave the way for the Vatican II reforms? Uh, the answer to both questions is no. <laughs> okay. And I, again, I, I think there's a, a lack of understanding here. And lack of understanding even what we're saying here. Uh, in Divino Aflatu, uh, Pope Pius the, uh, the X, St. Pius X, reforming the praying of the, the divine office, the Roman breviary. St. Pius X did not, did not follow any non-Catholic principles in what he did. But in producing the Novus Ordo, the principles they followed were non-Catholic from beginning to end. These, again, were modernist principles they were following. And how he could, not, how he could equate the changes made by St. Pius X in reforming the bravery, especially as cumbersome as it had become, under Pope Leo XIII, and therefore very difficult for the uh, parochial clergy, the parish priests, to pray, um, for him to, to actually re- restore uh, what was a real restoration of the divine office to uh, a prayer uh, form of prayer that was, could actually be prayed and prayed well by the secular clergy and all of their difficulties and their, their, their uh, uh, occupations in life, caring for souls, has nothing to do with the changes and is totally different from the changes that were introduced under John the 23rd and Paul the 6th. They trace their, their principles they followed back to the uh, errant liturgical movement. <clears throat> that unfortunately was hijacked after Dom Garanger. Pope St. Pius X actually was following principles laid down by Dom Garanger, Dom Prosper Garanger, which were thoroughly Catholic. Um, the principles followed in by the subsequent changes were the anti-liturgical movement against Dom Garanger. And they were introduced by radical revolutionaries 
who were, uh, you know, back actually rejecting the ideas of Don Guéranger, were working to thwart what he was doing and to produce just the opposite. It's, it's, it's as stark a difference as the wheat and the weeds of last Sunday's gospel. St. Pius X was sowing the wheat, and they were sowing the weeds. And, you know, if someone who knows as much as this gentleman knows, and I assume it's a fellow, then he should be intelligent enough to see the difference. And if he's not, it's going to be almost impossible to explain to him, for him to see the difference in the origins of the changes. Um, one, a similar argument is, uh, comes from those who say, well, back in the year 1570, St. Pius V brought in the Tridentine Mass, okay, and um, he rooted out the rites of Mass that had been going on for you know, the previous 200 years around the world in various places and imposed his Tridentine rite of Mass. And isn't that exactly the same what Paul VI did in 1970, 400 years later, in giving us the new Mass? And the answer is no. Not only is it not the same, it is exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. <clears throat> because what St. Pius V did was he took the Mass of Rome, the Mass of Rome itself, with its origins traceable, especially in the canon, back to the 400s under Leo, Leo I. And he rooted out the modern, the modern rites that had cropped up during the times of Luther and Swingley and Calvin with all of their uh, degradations, with all, all of their heresies that had been introduced in their prayers. He rooted those out and replaced them with the traditional Mass of Rome. Were there some changes? Yes, but they were all changed along Catholic lines, along the lines of Catholics, liturgics based upon Catholic theology and Catholic faith, right? <clears throat> Paul VI did exactly the opposite, in that he rooted out the traditional rite of Mass and imposed instead his, his own creation, basically, through Benini and the Concilium, his own creation of this Novus Ordo Misae, as he called it himself, a new order of Mass, diametrically opposed to what Pope Pius V had done. And what this gentleman is saying here, or what he's asking, the way he's posing his question, it just reminds me of that very same egregious error, very dangerous mm -hmm. error. I would just recommend that he go back and uh, examine the nature of the changes that were made. But go beyond that. Don't just look materially at the changes, like, oh, they took this prayer out, they substituted this prayer for that prayer, they changed this wording, whatever. Don't just look at it materially. Go back and look at the principles that were enunciated by the ones making the changes. What were they going by? What were the principles they were putting into practice? And he will see there that at the root of both of these, they had diametrically opposed principles. One set of principles, Catholic, by St. Pius X, according to Dom Guéranger, and the other set of principles, modernist, according to the new liturgical, the... the uh, basically the modest liturgical movement mm -hmm. that came out as an anti-liturgical movement. Father, I, I just can't help but, uh, but, but say that, you know, it seems so, so bold to almost uh, accuse Pope St. Pius X of paving the way for, for Vatican II and the modernism that came with that. You know, if there was ever 
one saint that, that you could label the anti-modernist saint, it would be Pope St. Pius X. Well, you know that, Tom, and I know that. I would think that individual would know, too. Hmm. But you see, all along here, what we've talked about tonight is a lack of application of real serious thought because people have sort of preconceived notions that they're holding on to and they don't want uh, they don't want to see anything that doesn't fit with those with those conclusions they've already drawn so he's trying to justify something here and so he's twisting reality to fit it but uh, if he actually went beyond the mere superficial look at this, that, oh, look, Pius X changed things, and John the Twenty-Third, they changed things too. So you see, <laughs> well, you know, they, it must be the same, right? And the answer is actually no. Once you begin to examine the um, the principles behind those changes, you find out they're very different. Sure. Uh, from each other, and not mutually opposed, actually. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want uh, anyone, including Michael Matten and uh, Dr. Peter Gwazniewski, to be offended by anything I said today. Actually, I would hope that it would all be taken by good grace, uh, in good grace, and with the idea that, well, maybe we really should um, have a serious discussion about these things. And, uh, and um, because... The, the situation demands it. Uh, we'd be very negligent if we just left it at that. Sure. Well, Father, thanks for leading the way in that discussion. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm leading the way. Uh, I think I'm kind of bringing up the rear, but uh, Tom, thank you very much. And no I, I pray that good comes from it. Mm -hmm. One I last, trust that it will. One last thing, Father. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you very much, Tom. You're welcome. Thank thanks you. for being here tonight. Well, uh, a very nice birthday gift would be getting my arm back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it is slowly uh, coming home, That's <laughs> like good. Yeah. reattaching itself, but I do appreciate the prayers yeah. very much. By the way, I, I have to uh, ask for prayers. I did on Sunday, and I do here now, too. We have to be praying for Archbishop uh, Carlo Maria uh, Vigano. We should all be praying for him. Um, one of the points I made, like in our, such as in our last program, we have a situation that is just incredibly bizarre, that we have a man who has stood up before the whole world, basically, challenged Francis, <clears throat> accusing him of being complicit in the sexual abuse crisis of his own clergy, that he knew about this, that he favored it, that he actually fostered it by things that he, decisions he made, and promotions he made, and then he disappears goes into hiding, says he, he now has reason to fear for his life, that his life is in danger. And ever since he's done this, we don't hear his friends or his enemies saying, his life isn't in danger. He's imagining this. Who would, who would be threatening him? Certainly not Francis. Certainly not his fellow bishops and cardinals. Certainly not the homosexuals. He's not in danger from any of them. Who does he imagine is trying to kill him? We don't hear anyone saying that he's wrong in fearing or arguing with the fact that, that he's in danger of death. Nobody suggests that, that I've seen anyway. N not his friends, not his enemies, not his supporters, not his detractors. 
even even Cardinal Ulet, with whom he worked for some time, in his appeal to uh, Archbishop Vigano, he did come out to in his letter and say, "Now, come on, please, you you're hiding because your 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 life is threatened." Well, we know that's not true. Let's not be over dramatic. Come on out of your hiding place. Let's get together and talk about this. Ulet never said that. He never said to Archbishop Vigano, at least in the, in the letter he wrote, look, this is false. You're not in danger of, of, of being assassinated, and you know it. The question is, if, if uh, Archbishop Vigano is in fact in danger of death, and nobody's contesting that on either side of the aisle, nobody's even raising a question about that. The question is, why does he believe he's in danger, and who is threatening him? What does he know that he's not saying? What does he know about what goes on in the Vatican? What does he know that goes on with Francis? What does he know that goes on with these bishops and cardinals? What does he know that goes on with the homosexuals that has convinced him that he is now in danger of death? What has he seen go on in the Vatican behind those walls? Well, there are things that have happened over there that would give one reason to think that, yes, one could be in danger of death for doing what Archbishop Vigano did. And I don't understand why there isn't an uproar everywhere about the idea, just the very concept of the fact that you have a man, a Novoserto Archbishop, who reveals something about Francis and is now, is now hiding for his life. This is something I would think that would draw a lot of questions from everybody, saying, what is going on here? Why is this man afraid that he's going to be killed, and by whom? And nobody seems to be answering that, asking those questions. Nobody seems, everybody just seems to be accepting it as though, oh, well, yeah, he's hiding for his life. And, but let's talk about what's in his letter. Let's ask whether he said, what he says about Francis is being true or not, Okay. Let's see if Francis is going to admit that. That's what this is really all about. I submit that that's really not what this is all about. I submit that what it's really all about, or what it really should be all about, is that for saying this, this Novosero Archbishop is now on the run for his life, that he fears he'll be killed by these people. That's what this really should be all about, in my mind. <laughs> I don't know if anybody agrees with me. But I, I just don't understand how it's possible that people just accept that and don't bat an eye at it. Scary times. It, it, is, it is actually frightening to think that this could be happening before our very eyes. But uh, it is. And uh, I, I would just like to see some people begin to wake up to this and start saying, you know, you know there is this, this other question about why there's an archbishop now hiding out for his life. And why he thinks somebody's trying to kill him for saying what he said and doing what he did. Maybe that's important, too. Maybe we need an answer to that question. Find out what's behind this. Well, uh, it's not up to me to do that. <laughs> but uh, maybe the Archbishop Vigano doesn't want that question asked because then... Maybe he would fear that they'd come looking for him and that's and they might find him and he doesn't want that either. I don't know. Uh, but in any case, Tom, this is a very bizarre situation. And what it all comes back to is <clears throat> what Dr. Kwasniewski said here earlier. We're pushing 
the envelope here, the limits of where, you know, it, this is sort of like uh, Captain Kirk, okay, <clears throat> in the Starship uh, Enterprise. Daring to go where no man has gone before. This is uh, Francis, okay? Captain Bergoglio, okay? Kirk means church, by by the way. You know the word Kirk. Captain Kirk means actually Captain Church, okay? So let's call Francis Captain Church, okay? He's Captain Church of the Starship. Uh, modernize, okay? <laughs> and he's going to take us all where no man has gone before, okay? And that's what modernism is all about, right? Okay. And uh, so, I mean, this is what Dr. Kwasniewski is actually, he doesn't put it in those terms, but he sees Francis taking this, you know, taking it all there. And he says, we're supposed to still, you know, recognize him as the Pope through all of this, you know, with no foreseeable thing that he could possibly do in, in order to ever raise the question about whether he's the Pope or not. Uh, talk about a bottomless pit. Talk about the abyss. And um, I think the fact that you have the situation with Archbishop Vigano, and we're all sitting around saying, oh, yeah, he's off hiding for his life because he said something about Francis. And, yeah, for all we know, maybe Francis wants to kill him. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe his fellow cardinals and bishops want to kill him. Maybe they would take a construct out on his life because he's threatening, finally, the one man who can make Vatican II really happen. Maybe the homosexuals want to kill him. Ooh, that would be very bad press, wouldn't it? Why doesn't anybody seem to care? That is bizarre. Anyway, I'm sorry. I rest my case. Thanks. Time to close. Thank you, Father. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Tom. I thank your patience. Thank you for your patience. No problem. Maybe this perspective is very unique to me, but I, I guess I can't. The wonderment is, is unique to me, that, that it is that is unique to me, sure. for what it's worth. All right. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.